0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio and today we're talking about the readings for the 20th Sunday in Ordinary Time, August 16th, 2020. Jesus leaves Jewish territory in our gospel today and heads north to the Gentile district of Tyre and Sidon. There he encounters a Canaanite woman whose daughter is possessed by a demon. Crying out to our Lord for help, her pleas are met with silence and even what feels like scorn. Jesus explains that he came into the territory to preach to the diaspora Jews, not the Gentiles. Nevertheless, his heart is in the end won over by this woman's persistence and he grants her desires. Greetings and welcome and thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, Special thanks real quick to everyone who dropped a review of the podcast over the last week. I got a bunch of them that came in after my request. So thank you so very much for everybody who took the time over the last week to review the podcast, really grateful. Um, There's no time limit. It's not like a a specific window in which you can review the podcast. You can review it at any time. So if you didn't have a chance to review the podcast last week, please do so. Just head to whatever app you typically use to listen to the podcast. I think most of you are on Apple Podcasts and you can drop a review right there quite easily, and it helps uh, kind of increase our audience, I guess you could say, Um, because the more reviews that we have, uh, the more good reviews we have, the more um, the podcast is suggested to other people. So that being said, today, we are talking about the readings for the 20th Sunday in Ordinary Time. We are deep in Ordinary Time. Uh, and our gospel, as typical for year A, is Matthew, Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. There's uh we skipped a little bit from uh what we covered last week in the gospel, but I'll talk a little bit about what we skipped because it's kind of it appears to be relevant uh to the episode we discuss here today in our readings and in the podcast. So Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, let's read it together. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came and cried out, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely possessed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away, for she is crying after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, "O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Matthew 15 verses 21 through 28. This is a fascinating gospel. It's one of those gospel readings where there's things that Jesus says in the gospels that are sometimes shocking. This is definitely one of those gospel readings that's like really shocking, um, because of the things that Jesus says to this poor woman, generally he's a very empathic guy, our Lord, right? And he uh, desires to help people, but he just puts this woman off. It's like, Lord, are you having a bad day or something? And uh, and and, and but, but there's there's another kind of fascinating aspect to it as well. Though every time I read this gospel, I think of um, the connection that the two of them had, because there's a way in which the, the dialogue reads like boom, 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 like back and forth, back and forth. There's almost like a banter, like, like the woman knows something about Jesus's heart and she knows how to banter with him. And uh, so I just love, I love that idea because I think we get into, we get a, a view of, of the kind of dialogue that our Lord probably enjoys having with us because uh, when he finally comes around and I don't know that he really comes around like he didn't like her in the first part of the gospel and then in the last part, actually he does. But I, I think he's testing her. But nonetheless, with this kind of testing that we all undergo, right? Um, there's this banter that takes place. So, so uh, you know, as far as spiritual edification goes, which I need, I know I usually say for the end, don't be afraid to banter with our Lord. He seems to enjoy it, right? That's kind of what wins his heart over at the end of the day. So let's just start from the very beginning and, uh, and talk about some of the details of our gospel. So it tells us That uh, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, I mentioned that our gospel today does not pick up where the previous week's gospel left off. It actually does skip a little bit. So it skips the first part of uh, Matthew chapter 15, because we pick up here at verse 21. So, what Uh, did we skip? Well, what we skipped is uh, an interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? They disregard the tradition of the elders. And Jesus seems uh, pretty right off the bat annoyed at this because he shoots back at them. Well, uh, why don't you guys follow the commandments of God? And they're like, what are you talking about? And he goes on to explain to them that uh, they found a way around the fourth commandment, essentially. Uh, So the fourth commandment was understood to Uh, imply, remember the fourth commandment is honor your father and your mother. The fourth commandment was understood to imply also material support for your parents. But the Pharisees had kind of uh, conjured up this allowance where so long as you dedicated your money to God and, and tithed it to the temple, you didn't have to use it to materially support your family or your mother and father. And so it seems like this was kind of a problem in Jesus's day. The fact that he brings it up to them and calls them out on it. Like perhaps some Pharisees were like, well, I don't like my mother and I don't like my father. So I'm not going to financially support them. Instead, in my piety, I'm going to give my wealth to God and I'm going to tithe it to the temple and mother and father. You understand, right? Because I need to give my money to God. Now, Jesus is not one to uh, excuse us from tithing. I could do like a I could do a special episode on why each and every one of us should give to the church, but that's another topic for another day. Nonetheless, there is a sense in which. Uh, the Pharisees have found a way to circumvent the actual law of God. Because remember here, what Jesus brings up to them is the fourth commandment. Now, what they bring up to him is not in the Torah. It's a quote-unquote tradition of the elders, which means it's a, a practice of piety forwarded by the Pharisees. And the idea is that there's a law that the priests have to wash their hands before service in the temple. And so the Pharisees were were like, well, in our piety, we're going to say that everyone out of piety should wash their hands before they eat. So we're, these are, these are two different levels here, but nonetheless, the Pharisees are, are annoyed that Jesus' disciples aren't following the quote unquote tradition of the elders. And what that, uh, causes is first of all as I mentioned Jesus you know brings up this this example of how they fail to keep the fourth commandment but then he goes on to explain um, at Matthew 15 10 and following what it means to actually be pure versus un- impure what it means to actually be clean versus unclean right he says hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, right? And what is our Lord referring to here? Well, um, cleanliness laws typically had to deal with, in many ways had to deal with, what one ate, okay? When you talk about cleanliness laws, which in our mind is like kosher laws, right? We're talking about what Jewish people could eat. And what Jesus is saying is it's not what you eat that defiles you, but what comes out of you. It's not what you put into your mouth that makes you unclean, but what comes out of your mouth, right? He goes on to describe right, uh, lost and licentiousness and on and on, all the things that come out of us, that come out of our hearts. And so what Jesus is doing here is defining what, what true uncleanness is. So true uncleanness is not merely ritual. It is ethical as well. And so This is why our Lord constantly referred to the Pharisees as hypocrites because, you know, him and his, you know, he is God and his omniscience, his all-knowingness, he can see the heart of the Pharisees and he sees that they are so outwardly quote-unquote pious, but inwardly they're sinners, they're hypocrites, right? Right? And and maybe so many of us are as well. We don't want to ever separate ourselves too much from the Pharisees because we all have elements of the Pharisees within us. And you know, Phariseeism can sometimes become even more of a struggle the more you grow in virtue, right? So the Pharisees were deeply devout and pious, right? They would pray a lot. They'd spend a lot of time in the temple. They'd spend a lot of their time studying Torah, Right. And so just just something to be aware of, my friends. If you are one who is finding yourself drawn towards God, which is a beautiful, wonderful thing, you need to be on the lookout for Phariseism because we can start kind of looking past our imperfections and past the rot that is in our heart because we go, oh, but, um, you know, I go to mass regularly. We can all go to mass regularly and have it have no effect on our lives, little to no effect on our lives, unless we're actually making an effort to reform ourselves, to conform ourselves. And who are we conforming ourselves to? We're conforming ourselves to Christ. Now, I just spent a lot of time talking about uh, the part of the gospel that's not actually our gospel reading, but it's relevant to our gospel reading because it kind of sets a scene for it. So who is unclean? Like who is the most unclean? Non-Jews, right? And what Jesus does here for us in his kind of preamble to the beginning of our gospel reading here at verse 21 is begin to change the perception of cleanliness and uncleanliness. He he begins to hint at, possibly, a putting aside of purity law, which he's going to do. And if purity law is done away with, then the door to those who are unclean, a.k.a. the Gentiles, Is opened. And this is fascinating because at the very beginning of our gospel, where do we find Jesus? We find him not in Jewish territory, but we find him in the district of Tyre and Sidon. So then we have to ask ourselves, where is Tyre and Sidon? So Tyre and Sidon are two cities on the coast. Uh, The Mediterranean coast, so uh, Palestine and modern-day Israel, is bordered on the east side by the Mediterranean Sea. And so Jesus, in going to Tyre and Sidon, would have been going quite a ways north of where he normally was in Galilee, and north and northwest did I say that? Did I say that Israel is bordered on the east by the Mediterranean? That would be the west. I'm getting my cardinal directions mixed up. So Jesus would have headed north and west to find himself in um, Phoenicia. Okay, an area that included Tyre and Sidon, these two like twin cities that are right on the coast, right on the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and so these are, this is Gentile territory, right? Not only is is Gentile territory, but the particular person that Jesus encounters here is labeled for us as a specific kind of Gentile. She is a Canaanite, which would have likely caused, Many Jews witnessing this exchange and then reading about it in Matthew's gospel, it would have caused them to cringe, right? Why is that? Well, the Canaanites are the ancient enemy of Israel. So the, their first mention, right, is, is all the way in the book of uh, Genesis, We're told in Genesis 10 that Canaan is the son of Ham, who is one of the three sons of Noah. Now, that's already problematic because um, Ham, uh, in addition to having a really unfortunate name, um, was also the uh, son of Noah who was—he was a sinner. He was unrighteous. So if you remember the the random story in Noah where Noah gets drunk— And it tells us that um, his son Ham uncovers his father's nakedness. Um, Uncovering your father's nakedness is a Hebrew euphemism for incest, okay? And so Ham was the sinner in the family. And and you didn't uh, necessarily want to be part of Ham's descendants, right? Because Ham did not remain faithful to the Lord. So that's fascinating because, and this is, this happens all throughout scripture, that those who are unfaithful to the Lord end up, uh, issuing forth descendants who become enemies of Israel. So, um, Canaan is the son of Ham and it's from Canaan that, uh, the peoples come forth. The descendants of Canaan are the people's that actually end up dwelling in the land of Israel, dwelling in the land of, you know, what was called at the time Palestine, dwelling in the promised land that uh, God promises to Abraham. It's the Canaanites, the, the, the sons of Ham. And then interestingly enough, one of the sons of Canaan is named Sidon. Okay. So arguably that's where the name of the city of Sidon comes from. What else do we know about the Canaanites? What else do we know about the Canaanites? So, um, the Canaanites have kind of like a mixed history for us. So, so they're they're the arch enemies in many ways of the Israelite people, of the Jewish people, precisely because it was the Canaanites who dwelled in the Promised Land. And the Canaanites who had to be driven out of the promised land in order for the promise to Abraham to be fulfilled, right? But there's other, there's other um Kind of aspects of the Canaanites, um, both on the positive and on the negative kind of level, all throughout scripture. For, so, for example, and this is related to last week's reading. So, last week's first reading was about Elijah and he's on the run, right? And this is where um, God reveals himself to him um, in the silence, right? But uh, Elijah found himself in that situation because he had, uh, he had contended with the pagan priests and he had, uh, you know, won over them in this competition. And because of that, he had them slain. Now, this incites the fury of the king because the king is married to a woman named Jezebel. And that name has become famous with, it's become like synonymous with like sinfulness, right? Um the king is married to Jezebel, who is the daughter of the king of Tyre. Okay, so so when we talk about the Canaanites and we talk about Tyre and Sidon, these are loaded with biblical history and loaded with uh, loaded with emotion for the Jewish people. Right on the other aspect of it, though, because I said there's there's. There's Canaanites on kind of like both the positive aspect and the negative aspect. So Jezebel is definitely hard to the negative aspect, right? But in the same story of Elijah who finds himself on the run, we have the widow of Zarephath. And the widow of Zarephath was herself a Canaanite. And yet she is the one who offered hospitality to Elijah While he is on the run, uh, being hunted by this other Canaanite, Jezebel. So we have Jezebel and the widow of uh, Zarephath. Just a fun little fact. Zarephath is a Phoenician city that finds itself between the two cities of Tyre and Sidon. And just because I love fun facts for you here, and I love... Connecting things. Um, You have maybe heard before how the color purple had deep significance in the ancient world. So the color purple um, was associated with royalty, with wealthy people and then with royalty. And the reason for that is because the pigment of purple uh, was very difficult To manufacture. Um, It was actually manufactured in the area of Tyre and Sidon, okay? Which is where or why that district, that area also has the name of Phoenicia. I mean, I'm kind of getting into the weeds here, but I just love connections like this. So Phoenicia is actually a Greek name, which means it's an exonym, right? It's a name of a place given by outsiders because the the inhabitants of Tyre and Sidon were not themselves Greek, so they wouldn't have given themselves a Greek name. Nonetheless, the area became referred to as Phoenicia by the Greeks, which means land of purple because in that area of Tyre and Sidon, there were the, understandably, because they're on the Mediterranean Sea. There were the uh, the sea snails that were harvested in order to manufacture the pigment purple, and the pigment purple was so expensive because it was so hard to manufacture, and it took so many sea snails that it was really expensive. And so only very wealthy people could afford to have purple clothing. And actually, from what I understand, somewhere around the 4th century AD in the Roman Empire, purple, there was a law that was put in place that only uh, the Roman emperor could wear purple. And so it became associated with... uh, With uh, royalty, so wealthy people, and then with royalty. In Mark's gospel, he says that the Canaanite woman is a Syro-Phoenician. A A Syro-Phoenician. So that's in reference to Phoenicia um, and Syria, because the area was annexed to the Roman district of Syria. And so it became known as Syro-Phoenicia, which is why in Mark's gospel... Um, the woman is referred not as referred to not as a Canaanite, but as a Syro Phoenician. But honestly, by calling her a Syro Phoenician, it wouldn't have been quite as jarring for the Jewish people as calling her a Canaanite. Okay, so back to where we were. Jesus uh, finds himself in Tyre in Sidon, and he encounters this Canaanite woman. We said these these Canaanite people have, uh, the, the, the Canaanites bring all sorts of like baggage with them, like emotional associations for the Jewish people. Jezebel, the widow of Zarephath. Fascinatingly enough to continue with the idea of like positives and negatives, Jesus himself had some Canaanite ancestors, okay? So in Matthew's genealogy, Of our Lord, he lists at Matthew 1, verse 3 and verse 5, Tamar and Rahab. And these are both Canaanite women. Okay, so there's an idea in which the Canaanites are the arch enemies of the Jewish people. And yet at the same time, they're like part of Jesus's genealogy, which means they're part of the genealogy of of David, mind you right? Okay. So it's not like just simply Jesus had some awkward, like personal background. We're talking about like the descendants of David here. Okay. So the, the, the idea of Jesus encountering a Canaanite woman is, is very loaded. This goes, this goes back as far as the old testament. Not that I need to keep like beating this horse for you, but if you want to you can head to wisdom chapter 12. And this whole section of wisdom gives like the sins of the Canaanites. Those who lived long ago in your holy land you hated for their detestable practices, their works of sorcery and holy rites, their merciless slaughter of children, and their sacrificial feasting on human flesh and blood and on and on and on it goes on, right? And yet, again, this contrast, if you are a careful reader of the Gospels, you find that um, Jesus has possibly a positive view of the people of Tyre and Sidon. So at Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin, which is a, a Jewish town on the Sea of Galilee. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, also a Jewish town on the Sea of Galilee. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Why is that? Well, we're gonna see that in a second when we observe the faith of this Canaanite woman who finds herself in the district of Tyre and Sidon, but she is not the only one who is open to the lordship of Jesus. At Mark chapter three, verse seven, we read, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great multitude from Galilee followed, also from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude hearing all that he did came to him. Okay. So this woman isn't the only one. And so again, oh, the Canaanites, they're enemies. And yet at the same time, they're helpers. Uh, Tyre and Sidon, it's its pagan. And yet at the same time, Jesus says that it's more faithful. Those two pagan towns are more faithful than Chorazin and Bethsaida. Strong words, strong words. And yet Jesus is going to put this Canaanite woman to the test. Verse 22, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came and cried out, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely possessed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not fair to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Let's unpack this dialogue, this back and forth. First of all, she comes, she cries out, have mercy on me, O Lord. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Uh, Dr. Petrie points out in his own commentary on um, our gospel here today, that this, this phrase that she uses, it's not exactly the phrase that we used in the liturgy, and yet it's essentially the same idea. Have mercy on me, O Lord, have mercy on me, a lay zone. And Lord Kyrie, Kyrie a lay zone is what she cries out to him. And so we can be reminded of that as we find ourselves in mass in the beginning parts of the liturgy and we cry out Kyrie a lay zone. Now, fun fact for you here, maybe you've already put and two together many people think that Kyrie eleison is latin because the vast majority of the rest of you know the the texts of the liturgy the you know non-vernacular texts of the liturgy are latin nonetheless this phrase this mass response is in fact Greek. And so it totally brings us to this place. It puts us in the place of this Canaanite woman. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Kyrie eleison, son of David. Now, you'll find at various times that people cry out to Jesus and they call him the son of David such that we can get used to people calling him the son of David. But you have to understand that that's like a, a... really interesting and probably even jarring thing for people to hear Jesus be called son of David. Why? Because that's a, that's a royal phrase. That's a royal name. That's a royal title. To be called the son of David means that you are the heir to the throne. It's like being your, it's like, it's like calling Jesus your royal highness, And so it's fascinating when when anybody calls Jesus that, but it's fascinating here that we have a Gentile woman and not just any Gentile woman, but a Canaanite woman. So a descendant of those people who originally dwelled in the land promised to Abraham, calling Jesus the son of David. It's as if this woman is finally recognizing the people and the man that conquered her in many ways. And she she recognizes that gladly. It's as if to say, um, not only have you conquered me, although that would have felt a little ambiguous at the time in the political setting because Rome had conquered all of them, right? But, but there's a sense in which uh, looking at it from a historical perspective, she's saying, Lord, you have conquered me. But not only that, but like, Lord, conquer me. Like she welcomes that. She welcomes Jesus's lordship over her. Do we welcome Jesus's lordship over us? That's a really... um, That's a really tough question. Do we welcome Jesus's lordship over us? What is the the primary thing that a king does, right? What is the primary thing that a ruler does? He institutes laws for the governance of his people. How many of us are averse? We're averse to anyone telling us what we ought to do. We're even averse to to people like highly recommending things to us. Do we welcome Jesus's lordship? And do we welcome Jesus's lordship in the people to whom he has he has delegated his lordship? You know, so many times I hear people like reference their parish priest or their bishop and say, um, you know, uh, whatever, Jesus wouldn't do that. Now, I'm not one to say that our parish priest or our bishop are Jesus for the same reason that they themselves would not say that they are Jesus. Nonetheless, in the office that has been delegated to them Through Jesus in his church, we owe the same obedience. So, not only can we ask ourselves, Do I welcome Jesus's lordship over me, but do I welcome those to whom he has delegated his lordship? Do I welcome their laws, their rules? Do I, do I welcome even their recommendations? Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely possessed by a demon, so she needs something. And she recognizes that only Jesus can free her daughter from this demonic possession, from the influence of Satan. But Jesus doesn't answer her. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely possessed by a demon. Silence. And apparently she continues because it tells us in the next sense, his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying after us. So we get this image, we can't know for sure, but we get this image of like Jesus and his disciples possibly walking, right? And she's following after them, crying out to him, not just once, but multiple times, enough that the disciples are like, look, apparently this isn't making you uncomfortable, but this is making all of us uncomfortable. So can you do something about it? Can you can you at least just tell her no? Maybe Maybe that's what's going through their head because at this point, he's simply ignoring her. Have you ever felt ignored by God? The scripture here teaches us how we respond to a feeling of neglect from God. How do we respond when we feel that God is answering us with silence? How do we respond? With persistence. With persistence. Send her away for she's crying after us. He answered I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is fascinating in part because it actually describes to us, it tells us why Jesus found himself in the district of Tyre inside and Sidon, why he chose to leave Jewish territory and go to the land of the Gentiles. Because if, if you're, you know, paying attention, you're kind of having a critical mind as you read through this gospel, you might be like, I don't really get this because why would Jesus go into Gentile territory then refuse to do good works for the Gentiles? And Jesus answers this question right here. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What is he referring to here? It's referring to a group of people that's very specific. So if you remember back to um, Israelite history. And I wish I had more time to go into this. One day I'll do like a, I'll do a Bible course for you guys that uh, that, that that goes through the broader history. But um, you may be familiar with the idea of the divided kingdom. So Israel was ruled over In unity by David and then by his son Solomon. But under Solomon's son Rehoboam, the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms. And Israel, uh, the name Israel came to refer to just the kingdom in the north, and the name Judah came to refer to the kingdom in the south. Then what happened is because they had kind of divvied up their power um, and separated from one another, they were susceptible to foreign powers. And so both. Israel, the Northerners, and Judah, the Southerners, end up being taken off into exile. And some of them return, but some of them don't. And some of them uh, choose to kind of stay where they find themselves or to. Move, but not return to the promised land, to not return to the land of Israel. Nonetheless, they're Jews and some of them are even devout Jews. So, you know, for example, in the book of Acts, when it talks about Pentecost and Jews coming from all over the world to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, right? These are true Jews. These are devout Jews, but they don't find themselves in the promised land. They are quote unquote, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That They're diaspora Jews, Jews that have been dispersed by the exile. That's precisely why Jesus goes to the Gentile territories in order to call to himself to minister to his fellow Jews, but who find themselves in Gentile territory. And so what Jesus is saying is, I know I'm here. I know I'm in Gentile territory, but I'm not coming for you. But she came and she knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. This Greek word that's translated knelt, proskuneo, in the vast majority of other places where it occurs in the Greek New Testament and the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, in the vast majority of places where proskuneo, this Greek word, occurs, it's translated worshipped. And so in many ways, we could argue that what she did here. And when we really think about it, yeah, there's maybe a sense in which she's kneeling down, begging him to help her. But it makes sense, especially if she's already called him Lord and son of David, that she's trying to convey to him that she is his. She is his. She came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Holy buckets. Okay, so the first time she makes a request, he doesn't answer. The second time she makes a request, he kind of like, answers it, but like just in her direction. Cause it's not really clear if he turns to her and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Or if she says that, or if he says that to his disciples, I'm thinking it's more of the latter, but maybe it's like an earshot, right? And then, and then this third time when she kneels in front of him, worships him and says, Lord, help me. What does he say? It is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. There's a there's a lot going on here. For one, this is one of those beautiful phrases that, you know, many times um, the things in scripture have to like be translated into our own language and context to really get them. This does not. This comes across loud and clear through 2000 years of cultural difference and cultural history, right? It is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, but but let's dive into it a little bit. There's a sense, we can look at um, how the Gentiles view dogs and how the Jews f- view dogs. So first of all, uh, Gentiles were more uh, sympathetic to dogs and would, you know, be more likely to keep dogs as pets, um, but they didn't have like pet food, like we have pet food, Right. You wouldn't go to Costco and pick up your, you know, giant bag of dog food for fluffy. Well, How would you feed your dog? From what's left over, from the crumbs, right? But let's look at it from a Jewish perspective. In Jewish culture, dogs were gross and dogs were unclean. And dogs were not, like, supposed to really be in the town at all. They were supposed to be, like, run out, And because of that uncleanness, there's an idea in which dogs can be associated with Gentiles and Gentiles with dogs, right? They're both unclean. It is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In other words, it's not fair to take what is rightfully the Jewish peoples, what belongs to the Jewish people, and give it to the Gentiles, now this is not really an uh, an odd idea. Um Jesus came first and foremost for the Jewish people. He had he had a an intelligence, a rationale behind his ministry. St. Paul talks about this a fair amount. Why? Because Paul was the first one to really intentionally take the gospel to the Gentiles. So for example, at Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Jew first and then to the Greek. Jew first and then to the Gentile. Why Jew first? Because they are the promised, uh, the, the promised people. Right, Jew first and then Greek. The Jews, because they are the recipients of the promise, they are the the chosen people. I should say I was calling them the promised people, but the chosen people is the word I was looking for. So Jesus's ministry is primarily to the Jewish people. And he, he has uh, provisions for the Gentiles. It's just going to come later. Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles is going to come later, and it's going to come primarily through the church, right? It's not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, but she said, "Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table and you can see how i can just i can just see how jesus's heart just like melts when she says this and what is implied here well it's obvious and yet at the same time there's a there's a manner in which she's saying i know i'm one of the dogs and yet as one of the dogs, I will sit at your feet. We've all seen this before, right? You're eating, and where, where's the dog? You always know the, where the dog is when people are eating. Where? Under the table, at everyone's feet, waiting for crumbs to fall. I know I am the dog, she's saying, and yet I am at your feet. And at this point, she's probably still kneeling before him. I am at your feet, waiting for crumbs to fall. All I need is a crumb. And Jesus answered her, A oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. A oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. How are we? how are we when we have to be persistent in prayer? How are we when we encounter silence from the Lord? One of my favorite things about this reading is that it actually reminds me so much of the wedding feast at Cana. So if you remember back to the wedding feast at Cana at John chapter two, uh, our lady comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine, And he says, my hour has not yet come. In other words, it's not time for me to to perform a miracle right now. That's what he's saying to her. It's It's not time yet. It's not time for me to begin showing forth my divinity. It was not part of Jesus's plan. And yet what does Mary say? What does our lady say? She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And what does Jesus do? He performs his first miracle. There's a way in which it was not part of our Lord's plan to help this woman. He says it himself, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And yet this woman this Gentile woman, this pagan woman, this Canaanite woman, she changes his mind. She changes his mind. How does she change his mind? With her persistence, with her faith. A woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Lord, give us the strength and the fortitude of persistence help us to understand that if you are trying us and testing us with silence, it is not because you do not love us, but rather because you are giving us the opportunity to grow in our faith. And what, what matters more than faith? Nothing. Nothing. Lord, you train us, you help us, you grow us. May we be open to the ways in which you teach us and train us and allow us to grow. Lord, increase our faith so that at the end of the day, you may say to each of us, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire.